0: Welcome to Divine Truth Podcast with Dr. Stephen M. Huffman. Michael is the senior pastor with Emmanuel Baptist Church in beautiful Central Virginia. The purpose of this podcast is to teach and edify God's people through a verse-by-verse exposition of God's Word. To learn more about Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit www.ebcmineral.com. And now, here's Pastor Michael Huffman. To the Gospel of Matthew, again, chapter number 7. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter number 7. And after you have found that, out respect for God's Word. If you'd please stand as we read our text. Matthew, chapter 7, beginning in verse number 21. Where Jesus says, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, Have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Eternal, gracious Father, as we approach this very important passage this morning. Lord, Father, I pray that the Spirit of God would cut through our hearts like a knife, and that we would, our true self would be revealed. Father, we ask you to teach us your truth. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Thank you very much. You may be seated. The Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 13 that the church age is going to be very strange. If you remember in Matthew chapter 12, the Pharisees and those connected with them had committed the unpardonable sin by attributing the works of Christ to Satan. And Jesus comes along and says, you know, I can forgive anything but that. In other words, if you've seen all the things that I've done and you've heard all the things that I've said and at the end of the day you've come to the conclusion that I've done them by the power of Satan, then you are beyond the possibility of salvation. And while the church age uh, comes up in Matthew chapter 13 and God having for a moment set Israel aside because of her unbelief, Christ begins to implement a a a group of parables, a series of parables to discuss the church age and how that the church age is going to be very unique. Christ talks about the fact that during the church age there are going to be wheat that grow up among the tares. In other words, there will be true followers of Christ within the church, and then there will be the false and Jesus goes on to say in those parables that it's going to be so hard to tell which one is the true from the false that it's not going to be until the appearing of Christ as the final judge that we're going to be able to distinguish between the two and so throughout all of the church age there will be false followers of Christ and there will be those that are true believers in Jesus Christ I'm reminded of what something that Jesus Christ said to one of the churches in Asia Minor in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 1, where Jesus says this, And unto the angel of the church of Sardis write, These sayings saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. He says, I know thy works, that thou hast a name that thou livest and are what? Dead. And church, listen, I'm afraid that that's a commentary on most churches in America today. While we may have the title as church, and while we may have the title of being alive, we are, in fact, really dead. And the churches across our land today are dead because those people that make up those churches are dead. I would dare say, folks, that a great majority of churches and a great majority of church members in America today, they do not know what it is to be a real Christian. And therefore, they are spiritually dead. John MacArthur said, Most churches, Satan wouldn't even waste powder and shot on them. Because they're dead from within. But a living church, a church that in reality knows Jesus Christ and proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ, that kind of church, folks, is always going to be under attack because that's the type of church that must be the conscience of the community. Because, listen, a church must be a real, it must be a vital, it must be a a living organism within the community that takes upon itself the business of taking the gospel to dead people because it's only the gospel that can make them alive. Listen, there is absolutely no way from the biblical standpoint that a true believer could ever court the world. In fact, believers must be so well defined that believers, we become the antagonist of the world. For those outside of Jesus Christ, I pray that Emmanuel Baptist Church is the most uncomfortable seat in all of the world because we present a gospel that divides. We don't want unsaved people. We don't want spiritually dead people to come sit in these seats and feel at home. We want them to feel welcome, yes, but we don't want them to feel comfortable because we preach a gospel that divides between the wheat and the tares. And when the church courts the world, when believers court the world, the church and those believers become just like the church at Sardis. The fact is, I would probably say that perhaps even today in Emmanuel Baptist Church, there are people sitting in these pews this morning that do not have a true relationship with Jesus Christ. And the words of Jesus Christ that He gives us here are not a warning for those outside of the church. They are a warning for those within the church. Perhaps today, folks, you have religious sensation. Perhaps you may even have sanctimonious emotions. But you do not know Jesus Christ. And Christ gives these solemn warnings to this group of religious people and we want to break down these passages in four main headings. We want to look at an empty proclamation, an essential practice, an excusable pattern, and an eternal position. And as we look at these four headings together, I want us to examine our lives this morning. And I want the Spirit of God, as I prayed at the beginning, I want the Spirit of God to take His sword of conviction, and I want Him to cut us like a knife. Because I want us to look at our hearts. I want us to examine ourselves. Isn't that what Peter says? Peter says, examine yourself to make sure that you are in the faith. In fact, Peter goes on to say, make sure that your calling and election are sure. We need to forget what we've always claimed. We need to forget what people have always thought we were. We need to forget what we have always said we were. And we need to let the Holy Spirit convict us and try us and weigh us this morning. Number one, an empty proclamation. Look at verse 21, the first part. Jesus says, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, stop right there. Remember what Christ had just said at the conclusion of the last sermon in verse 20 of chapter 7? Wherefore by their what? Fruits, you shall know them. Now in verse 22 of our present passage, Jesus uses the phrase in that day. And that is a very, very important phrase because it says there's going to come, folks, a particular literal day when Jesus Christ is going to come, not as a lamb in a manger, not as a sacrifice, but there's coming a day when Jesus Christ is going to come as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and He's coming to judge. And the phrase on that day is always in Scripture connected with judgment. There is coming a day when Jesus Christ will judge every believer, but there's also, listen, coming a day when there will be a judgment of unbelievers, and that is the judgment that Christ has in mind here in our text. There is coming a day when at the great white throne judgment, that is going, church, to be a reality. You hear me this morning? That is going to be a reality. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, the Bible says this, John says, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small, and great stand before God, and the books were open, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And notice what Jesus says, "...and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their," what? "...works." In other words, they had no faith to commend them. All they had was their works. And then he says in verse 13, "...and the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works." And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And Christ teleports His listeners here on that mountain to the final judgment and to the people that will be confronting Christ. And there will be people on that day Jesus says, that have a verbal assent. Now, Christ tells these people that are sitting on the mountain that day that true followers of Jesus Christ will be known by the fruit that they bear, right? By their fruit you shall know them. Because as Jesus said in our last passage, a good tree cannot produce bad fruit, a bad tree cannot produce good fruit. And the Bible says that the tree that produces bad fruit is going to be cut down and thrown into the fire, right? Right? And this is the picture we said together of eternal punishment for those who do not have the fruit of true regeneration and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ however Jesus Christ I want you to understand this morning goes a little bit farther and tells his listeners that they better be careful not to mistake the fruit because listen church Jesus Christ makes it clear right here that proclamation is not fruit Okay? Proclamation is not fruit. Christ says it is not the one that has a particular proclamation that's truly born again. It's not even the ones that may have been acknowledged in a verbal way the lordship of Christ. Do not believe, church, anyone that says that it's easy to become a Christian. Listen, salvation for the sinner costs God his own son. It costs Jesus Christ His own life and it will cost you everything to be a Christian. Salvation is not gained by repeating words, least of all saying, Lord, Lord. Now the Jews would use the term Lord uh, alone as a, as a term of respect and honor. But for those people who would use the term Lord, Lord, suggests a much more than just human respect. And what Jesus Christ comes along here and says is that empty words, church, empty words of acknowledgement of who I am is not the fruit that proves the veracity or the truthfulness of one's faith. One's faith, church, is not measured by lip service. Let us this morning not only examine our neighbor, but let us this morning, most, most importantly, examine ourselves. This is the sole reason why Jesus Christ started with a Sermon on the Mount the way He did and why we've spent so much time here. Because we must come to God on His terms and that requires that we recognize our total unworthiness and our total inability and that means the death of pride and self. And just a mere flippant acknowledgement of the Lordship of Christ does not according to Christ, does not guarantee someone's home in heaven. Jesus Christ makes strong demands on those people who would enter the kingdom. And the, and the strong demands, folks, as we've been looking at this sermon, the strong demands of Christ can be summed up in one word, and that's the word righteousness righteousness except your righteousness he says in verse 20 of chapter 5 except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees you shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven and what you have in verses 21 through 22 is a verbal profession there are people who say that that are there are people who say that they are Christians and they are not they say, and they say, and they say. They hear, and they hear, and they hear. But something is missing. Because, church, listen, at the verbal profession alone does not cut it. Because Jesus Christ says that everyone that acknowledges, not everyone, that acknowledges me as Lord will enter heaven. In one sense, it is a verbal acknowledgement. But in another sense, it's intellectual suicide. John MacArthur said in his book, Truth War, he made this following short statement. He, said, let's, he says, let's be clear. Truth certainly does entail more than bare propositions. He goes on to say in the same book, so it is quite true that faith cannot be reduced to mere assent to a finite set of propositions. In other words, it doesn't matter what you say. Your your home in heaven is not determined by mere profession to a set of propositions. Listen, you may believe all of the non-negotiables, as we call them, of the faith. That doesn't mean you're going to heaven, does it? You may believe in the deity of Christ. You may believe in the authority of Scripture. You may believe in the atonement of Christ. You may believe in the sinless life of Christ. That doesn't mean you're going to heaven that's synonymous with just saying lord lord and and that's not synonymous with true faith because james says in james chapter 2 and verse 19 thou believest that there is one god thou doest well the devils also believe and tremble saving faith is not a mere intellectual nod of approval to the bare facts of a minimalist gospel outline which is why Jesus Christ says that a mere acknowledgement of His Lordship is not the basis on entrance into heaven. Let the words of Christ today, church, be crystal clear. An acknowledgement of Christ's Lordship alone are empty words. An acknowledgement of Christ's Lordship alone are empty words. As the church, we must not mistake true repentance and faith for just a mere acknowledgement of facts because on that day Christ will not accept that alone. One day Jesus says all of those words will be an empty proclamation. Jesus says not everyone Words of Jesus in verse 21. Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, not everyone that makes a verbal assent, a verbal attestation to facts, will go to heaven. Folks, we need to be crystal clear on that, don't we? We need to be crystal clear on that. And I would dare say that, Roman, that Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23 are probably some of the most unpopular verses to preach. In churches because it cuts people like a knife doesn't it it cuts people bare it cuts it slices right through their religion it slices right through their propositions it slices right through their claims and lays them bare and said I don't really know Christ because all I've had was an intellectual attestation but it's never been true faith it's all been an empty proclamation but not only an empty proclamation, but number two, an essential practice. An essential practice. Look at the last part of verse 21. Jesus says, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now notice what he says in the latter part of the verse. What's he say? But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. It, listen, church, it is not the perfection. It is not the acknowledgement of facts that proves the reliability of faith, but it is that practice that accompanies the profession. How does a man or a woman become part of the kingdom of God? Well, as we've already seen, it's not the one that just says, Lord, Lord. It's not the one that just makes a verbal assent, a verbal attestation. But according to verse 21, it is the one that does what? The will of my Father. It is not the one that just makes a plain verbal assent. Yes, I acknowledge these facts that is saved. Jesus says the ones that enter the kingdom of heaven are not the one that, says that, that say all the right things. Jesus says the ones that enter heaven is the one that does the will of my Father in heaven. In Matthew chapter 25, for example... Verses 1 to 13, we have an interesting story there about ten virgins. And in that story that was told by Christ, these ten virgins were invited to a feast. Five of them came and were prepared by bringing oil and having it in their lamps, right? You remember the story. Five of the other ones were foolish because they weren't prepared. And when you get down to verse 11, you you have where Jesus says the door is shut, and those five are left outside of the door. Remember what they said in verse 11? Lord, Lord. Sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? Lord, Lord, Master, Master. Open to us. I can just hear, can you hear the voices outside the ark? Open to us. In verse 12, Jesus says in Matthew 25, but he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you Not. Listen, this is illustrative of what Christ is trying to say here in our text, isn't it? They were invited to the feast. They had prepared to the extent that they had brought their lamps. They even had on the right clothes. They even had arrived at the meeting house, but they didn't get in. Why? When they came to the door that was shut, they said, Lord, open to us. But what does He say? I never knew you. These ten virgins seemed to have prepared and were ready for the feast, but they were not allowed into the feast because what they had was a sham. It was a mere acknowledgement, but listen church, there was no true obedience. The prophet Hosea gives us really a graphic illustration of this using the nation of Israel. Hosea's people, the nation of Israel, had kind of come to a point in, their, in the history of their nation where they had really come to the bottom. Israel had really you know, hit the skids. And, the, and by the time Hosea comes along, he's ranting and raving to the nation about my people destroyed because of their lack of knowledge. He says what you have, you don't have a reality on the inside. He, in fact, Hosea likens them to do that evaporates. There's no substance there at all. They, they have neglected God as a nation. They have forsaken God. And they do not even come near to His house. And then when you come to chapter 8 of the prophet Hosea, verse 1, it says this, So set the trumpet in thy mouth. He shall come as an eagle against the house of the Lord, because they have transgressed my covenant and transgressed my law. Now, first of all, what we need to understand that the English word eagle there in the original Hebrew text means Vulture. Vulture. And so Hosea gives. And what do vultures do? They hang around that which is what? Dead. Dead. And Hosea gives us a very graphic illustration of a vulture swooping down upon the house of God. And it symbolizes the fact that with all their religious activity in the Israel, and with all the other things that they had done by way of performance, that the real truth was that the place was filled with dead people, so dead that the vultures swooping in to consume them. There was nothing in Hosea's prophecy. There was nothing in the house of God but dead corpses. Because all church, all of the religious activity that Israel had done meant absolutely nothing. Because they did not have a true relationship with God. Church, listen to me. You may profess. You may work. Just as Israel. But just like Israel was dead and is pictured by that vulture, so is our religion if it is not accompanied by obedience. We can claim all day that I'm a Christian. Is your life obedient? Jesus says, not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter heaven, but he what? The one that does my, the will of my Father who is in heaven. That's the one that's going to go to heaven. And for the nation of Israel, there was no reality to their religion, only formality. In verse 2 of Hosea 8, Israel shall cry unto me, My God, we know thee. Sounds like our text in Matthew 7, doesn't it? God does not know them, though, does He? So as you can see, it is not those people that wish to get in the kingdom that necessarily get in. It is not those people that, that ask to get in that necessarily get in. Listen, church, it's not enough to ask it's not enough to wish. It's enough to be obedient. It's enough to be obedient. As we look through the Sermon on the Mount, God has set certain rules for entrance into the kingdom, didn't He? And they must be, those rules must be obeyed or there's no entrance. You may want to enter. You may think that you are entering. And You may get involved in the church, just not too involved. But unless we come by the way of the Lord Jesus Christ, we will never enter in. And all of our religious practices, all of our religious operations are nothing in the world before malady and are meaningless. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Listen, folks, there is only one fruit that is proof positive of the reality of a person's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is the reality of obedience. Obedience. That's what Jesus said, right? Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, but the one that does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Listen, you do not obey to be saved. Don't please, don't misunderstand me. You do not obey to be saved. You could never do that. You could never obey enough to be saved because you're fallen. Dead people don't obey. And so you don't don't obey to be saved. When you are saved, God the Holy Spirit works in you in such a way that He produces the heart that longs to obey and produces the ability to obey. It's still all God. But it's only done in the heart of a person that is truly regenerate. Because it is only through personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that anyone will ever enter into the kingdom of God. It is not through church religious emotion. It is not through religious practice. It is not even through sanctified feelings. Lip profession means nothing. It is no good. There must be obedience Because obedience is the proof of the work of God in the heart of His children. Do you long to obey the Word of God? And I'll go in so far, the Bible even goes so far as to say this, do do you not only long to obey the Word of God, but do you obey the Word of God? Do you obey God's Word? I didn't say perfection. The Bible doesn't say perfection. But Jesus said, The ones that's truly born again are the one that is going to, out of a normal course of life, obey the will of God. And I'm afraid that in our churches and our pulpits across our land today, folks, we we put far too much emphasis on the carnality of Christians instead of the sanctification of Christians. We are not called to be carnal. We are called to be sanctified. We are called to be like Christ. And that means obedience to what he says. Because that's the proof of true faith. It's not the one that says, Lord, Lord. You know, you kind of get the element of shock, don't you, when when the people heard this. You mean we're not getting in? Whoa, 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 wait a minute now. What do you mean, Lord? What do you mean I'm not getting in? I remember the words of Jesus when He said in Luke chapter 6 in verse 46, why you, and why call ye me Lord, Lord, and what? You see, obedience is always tied to the Lordship of Christ. And if there's no Lordship of Christ in your life, folks, there's no salvation. There's no such thing as Jesus Christ. Listen very clearly to me. There's no such thing as Jesus Christ being Savior alone and not also Lord. That is absolutely foreign to the Word of God. It's popular preaching today, but it's absolutely foreign to Scripture. There's no such thing as true salvation being separated from the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And verse 21 gives us a proof positive of that once again. It's not the person that calls me Lord. It's not the person that acknowledges some facts, but it's the person that obeys the will of my Father in heaven. He says, why do you call me Master? and you don't obey Me. Given this idea, I'm not your master. If you don't obey Me, I'm not your master. If you don't do the things that I say, I'm not your master. Because those are the ones ones that obey. Those are the ones that are the true servants of the Master. The ones that are obedient to the Master. Again, if there's no obedience to the Master, it's because you don't belong to the Master. God has set in order the requirements for entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Listen, church, it has nothing to do with a building. It has to do with Jesus Christ. Calling Jesus Christ Lord or anything else is not enough. It is doing the will of God who is in heaven. That is the proof of salvation. It is not those that are saying, Lord, Lord but the ones that are continually doing as a habit of life the will of God. And again I want to emphasize this because God because Christ emphasizes it. It is not our doing that gets us there. Our doing proves the work of the spirit in our hearts, right? It's not religion it's not formality. It is Christ alone. Christ alone. Number three. An empty proclamation and essential practice and the excusable pattern. I should have put excusable in parentheses because, uh, in quotes, because this is what they consider to be an excusable pattern. Verse 22. Many will, Jesus says, many will say unto me that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name cast out devils? And in thy name done many wonderful works? You see these are the things that these people on that day will believe are excusable patterns that should allow them entrance into the kingdom. I mean when Christ announces his proclamation, there's there's an outburst There's a plea from the hearts of those people as they cry with with all the things that they've done. You know, folks, there'll be many people in heaven that are going to have nothing to show for but simple faith in Jesus Christ. But many more are going to go to hell being eternally disappointed because they thought their religiosity was enough. Millions of people depend on their morality. You know, the most dangerous doctrine in the world today, especially in the church, is the doctrine of morality. Because I don't cheat, steal, and cheat on my wife and steal, and I don't steal from my boss, and I I live a moral life. I must be okay, and I must be going to heaven. And the problem is, folks, is that the church has bought into that and we look at the outside world, and we look at people in our, uh, our relationships. we look at our friends, we look at our families, and they don't do those things that are wrong. They, they don't cheat. They don't steal. They don't chew, and they don't go with girls that do. So they must be Christian. Because they live a moral, upright life. They must be saved. I know he's saved because he does this and he does that. Listen, church, it has nothing to do with what you and I do. It has nothing to do with that. Because millions of people will depend on their morality. They'll depend on their good deeds, their baptism, their church membership, their religious feelings. Vodi Bauckham said this, hell will be filled with people who didn't drink, didn't cuss, and may have even been baptized. Why? Because none of those things make someone a Christian. None of those things make someone a Christian. There will be many Church workers in hell. There are going to be many pastors in hell, Jesus said. Prophesy means to preach or proclaim the truth. There'll be pastors in hell. And sadly, there'll be many teachers in religious schools in hell. And I'm sure that there'll be many people not that David said that, that look at Jesus and say, Christ, Lord, Lord, it's us. It's me. I prophesied in your name. I cast out demons in your name. And in your name, I did many wonderful works. Lord, it's me. It's me. Don't you remember me? And at that time, Jesus Christ will tear off the sheepskin and reveal the ravening wolf. The issue is not what was claimed. That's not the issue. There are many people in the church today that have orthodox theology. It's not the issue what was claimed. The issue is that they weren't obedient to the Word of God. That's the issue. And Jesus said, if you're not obedient to the Word of God, you're going to hell. Because if you're not obedient to the commands of God, you're not a Christian. No matter what you may claim verbally. Jesus said in John chapter 8 verse 31 and then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him if ye continue in my what? If you continue in my word in other words if you obey me then that is a sign that you are my disciple indeed right? In Colossians chapter 1 beginning in verse 22 in the body of the flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight if ye continue in the faith Grounded and settled and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard and of which was preached. What's the sign of salvation? Not being moved apart from the truth of the gospel, the truth of God's word. And listen, church, it's not just obedience that lasts until the newness wears off. Remember the parable of the seed and the sower that Jesus told? How many of those seeds were actually saved? One. Three of them sprouted, but only one of them was truly saved because only one of them produced the fruit of obedience. Just one. Just one. So it's not just obedience that lasts, quote unquote, until the newness of the wear is off, or or until the first trial comes. It is an enduring faith. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter three, verse fourteen: "For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the what end." In Hebrews chapter ten, verse thirty-eight: "Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back." Now, in other words, any man walk away from the faith, what does he say? My soul has no pleasure in him, but we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. John says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, they went out from us because they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us, but they went out up from us that, they, that it might be made manifest that they were not all of us. Salvation and obedience to the Word of God are absolutely inseparable, church. In Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 9, being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto them that what? What's it say? Unto them that obey him, you see. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 16, Know ye not that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. Folks, listen, we can claim all we want. We can go through the motions all we want. That's not the issue. That's not the issue. The issue is obedience. In Luke chapter 13 beginning in verse 25, When once the master of the house has risen up, and have shut to the door, and ye begin to stand without and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us. And he shall answer and say unto you, I know you not from whence ye are. Then shall you begin to say, We have eaten and drunk in thy presence, and thou hast taught in, and thou hast taught in our streets. But he shall say, You know, in other words, we've done all the right thing. Man, we've, we've enjoyed fellowship with your people. We ate with you. We drank with you. But he shall say, I tell you, I know you not from whence you are. Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves, what? Thrust out. Why? Because you did not obey the Word of God. Not that obeying is is how you get saved, but obedience is is the proof of the reality that the Holy Spirit is working in your heart and He produces obedience because you belong to Him. You know the biggest problem with the excusable patterns that we see in Matthew 7? It's pretty simple what the problem is. I... I've done this. I've done that. Folks, that's the wrong answer, isn't it? When someone comes up to you and says, if you were to stand before Jesus Christ today and He would ask you why I should let you in heaven, if your answer begins with because I, then you've given the wrong answer. Because I have faith. Because I was baptized. Because I prayed a prayer. Because I signed on the line. Because I did this. Because I did that. That's the wrong answer. The right answer is what? Because He... Because He, because He was my substitutionary atonement. Because He gave me new life. Because He did the work. Because He saved me. He produced obedience in me. He gave me a love for Him. He gave me a love for His Word. He gave me a love for God's people. He gave me a love for Christ. He, 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 and these people that stand before Jesus say what? I, I, I. That's the wrong answer. That's not the condition of entering the kingdom of heaven. It's not your religion. The condition with entering the kingdom of heaven is doing the will of the Father. That's what Jesus says. Number four. An empty proclamation, an essential practice, an excusable pattern, and and an eternal position. And then will I profess unto them, verse 23... I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. What words of finality? What words of finality? Church, let me ask you a question. Because I don't know anybody's heart just like you don't know mine. Do you have a form of godliness? Do you know the Lord personally? Are you obedient to His truth? Or you just say all the right things? But there's no desire for obedience and there, and there is no obedience to the truth of God's Word. Search your hearts. Do you really know the Lord or is it something that we just acknowledge superficially? Is it only head knowledge? Is it only religion? Is your life and my life marked by obedience to the commands of God? Are you therefore truly born again Jesus is crystal clear to those people that are sitting on the mountain today those religious people sitting on that mountain that it is not in what you say it is what the Holy Spirit proves in you by what you do it is not the fact that you claim Jesus Christ as Lord it is the fact that you do the will of the Father in the Bible, Jesus says in verse 23, then I will profess, and the word profess means to openly proclaim that in that very moment, church, the Lord Jesus Christ will openly proclaim that he never knew them. Who are the them? Those are the people that spent their time trying to convince the Lord that they had done all the right things and that that was good enough to get them into heaven. And when Christ says, I never knew them, of course he doesn't say that he never knew their identity. That would be silly. And the word know is a very, very important concept in Scripture. And, it, and what, it, what it does mean is that God knows His people. It does not mean the fact that God just knows who they are. Jesus is not saying that, depart from me, I never knew who you were. He knows everyone, doesn't He? He knows everybody. He knows everything. He knows how many hairs are on your head. He knows when a tree, a sparrow falls out of a tree. He knows something small like that. And he says, I never knew you. This is very crucial. In 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 19, look at the underlying part. The Lord knoweth them that are what? His. And what the scripture is trying to imply to us and teach us is that when Jesus, when God knows someone, he knows them in a unique relationship. I'm reminded of a passage in Amos chapter 3, and verse 2, where God says through Amos, and you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Now, let me ask you a question. Is the nation of Israel the only nation that God knew anything about? Well, that would be silly. Certainly not. He knew the Pezzarites and the Hivites and the Jebusites and the Canaanites and the Moabites. He knew all those people. And what he is saying is, he said, Israel, you're the only one that I had an intimate relationship with. It is the same idea in the Old Testament about a man going into his wife. It says in Genesis chapter 4 and verse 17 Cain knew his wife, meaning that they knew each other in a a special love relationship, the consummation of a a relationship of a husband and wife. Doesn't mean that Cain just knew who his wife was, it means he knew her in a special way. And in the realm of God, it means the same thing. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 19. That we are, the Paul says, known of God. What a beautiful concept, isn't it? That's intimacy. We are known of God. Well, God just doesn't know who we are. We are known intimately. We are known in a unique relationship. In John chapter 4, verse 10, rather, verse 14, I am the good shepherd and what? Know my sheep and am known of mine. And if you take the word know, and you take it to what it means by contextually in the Bible, you could really replace the word with love. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I love them. The Bible says I know them, but I know them in a unique love relationship is what what it means. And so Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I love them. Love them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my father's hand. My father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. I and my father are one. And I want you to notice verse 30, folks, I am my father are one. That is not a verse that teaches the deity of Jesus Christ. That is not a verse that says that Jesus is saying, I am my father are one in our deity. What Jesus is saying there in that passage is that the Father and I are one in purpose. Just as the Father has a special relationship with His people, so do I have the same special relationship with my people because I and the Father are one. It's not a relationship of deity. It's a relationship of purpose. What a beautiful relationship. But those who stand before Jesus Christ on that day, on that day of judgment that He's speaking about in Matthew 7, and He says, what you've said are just empty words. I never knew you. Not meaning I never knew who you were. He said, I never had a love relationship with you. I never had that with you. Depart from me. Depart from me. Probably the saddest words in the Bible. In Matthew chapter 25 verse 41, then shall he say unto them on the left hand, depart from me into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. John MacArthur said, Christianity is not a formality. Christianity, if you please, in the modern term, is not a religion. It is a personal love relationship with Jesus Christ. And that love relationship, it does just does not produce religious formality. It, folks, listen, it produces obedience. True faith, true salvation obeys the will of God. Of God false faith is just a form of godliness it puts up a front it puts up formalism but it's not genuine it's the kind of religion that says Lord it's me don't you remember all this that I've done I preached I taught Sunday school I sang in the choir I went on visitation It's me! What does Jesus say? I never had a love love relationship with you. Get out of here. Depart from me. Not because what you said wasn't the right thing. Because many people in hell will be orthodox in their theology. Meaning that they believed all the right stuff. So it wasn't the fact that they didn't believe the right stuff, Jesus says, that they're going to hell, that he never knew them. But what's he saying? He says, you did not obey. You proved that your religion was a formality. You proved that your religion was false. It was a sham. It was a fraud because your religion did not cause obedience because there was no work of the Spirit in your life to produce that obedience. Folks, we need to examine our hearts this morning because it's not what we say that proves the reality of our faith. It's our obedience. Jesus says, not everybody that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he that does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Everyone else, no matter how religious we are, everyone else, Jesus will say what? Depart from me. I never knew you. Let's bow our heads in prayer. <laughs> Father, what a fearful passage to think for a moment that people rely on their religious practices. And we know that people, Father, do that all the time because we always talk, hear people talk about being good enough to go to heaven and through their works. But to see it in this context of what Jesus said, that not everybody that says the right things, not everyone that's orthodox in their theology is going to heaven. The one that goes to heaven is the one that's obedient to me. Not that their obedience saves them but it shows the work of the Holy Spirit. And I pray, Father, that this morning that Your Word was clear, and I pray this morning that if there be one here today, no matter how religious that they may have been, that if there's one today that it does not know You in a personal way, it does not know You as truly Lord, and that's been shown through obedience and the work of the Holy Spirit in their heart. If that's... Father, if that's not them, I, just, I pray, Father, that You would draw them and convict them. Humble them as they have to remove the formalism of religion and trust You alone. Jesus' words are clear to His Father that it's not the one that's orthodox. It's not the one that acknowledges me as Lord. It's the one that obeys. Do you obey God's Word? I would encourage you this morning that if the Holy Spirit has convicted you that what you have is religion, what you have is a formality, You may have even prayed a prayer, joined a church, been baptized, done all the orthodox things. You may have done all those things, but Jesus didn't name any one of those things as evidence of true faith. He mentioned one thing, obedience, obedience. Why do you call me Lord if you don't do the things that I say? And I pray and I trust this morning that the Holy Spirit has convicted your heart, that you would seek me out. And we can sit down and show you from God's Word how you can know that you're born again. I trust and I pray, Father, that no one leaves today with doubts and questions, confusion, fear, but they would come get their questions answered. And as Christians... May we find ourselves praying for those who do not show the fruit of obedience that backs up what they claim. May we be found faithful to pray for their salvation. We commit it to You, Father. We realize today that it's Your work, it's Your business, and we leave it to You. And where the Gospel has been preached is where mankind stops and the Holy Spirit takes over and we just look to You, Father, and commit these folks to You. May they, may they judge their hearts through the light of God's Word and through the light of the reality of their life. Yes, I claim all these things, but no, I am not obedient. But I long to be. I want to be saved today. If that be You, then You find me today. And Christian, You pray that they may come to the Lord and truly be born again. We praise you and we thank you, Father, for your grace upon us. It's in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen.